Hi there folks, welcome to another RBT Sunday. Four Sundays ago, we did an overview of the first half of Matthew's Gospel together. This last week, we gathered in small groups to share what we had learned and enjoyed by reading through those chapters for ourselves. And this morning, we're returning to the Gospel of Matthew to look at the second half of the book together so that we can go away then and over the next few weeks, immerse ourselves in it and draw out more of the treasures from it to share with each other when we meet again in a few weeks time in those RBT groups. Uh, it's a great way to spend a month. In the first half of Matthew, we were introduced to the king and his kingdom. We read about the arrival of the king, life in his kingdom, the effects of his kingdom on people's lives, and finally, how people were beginning to respond to the king. And what we saw at the end of chapter 13 is that the difference of opinion had already begun to appear and grow. And ultimately, those differences of opinion about Jesus were around surrounding one particular question. Who is Jesus? Is he really the king? And if so, what kind of king is he? What Matthew lays out for us now in the second half of the gospel are three distinct and important answers to that question, what kind of king is Jesus? And he's going to show us that Jesus is the servant king, he is the dividing king, and finally that Jesus is the crucified king. First of all then, in chapters 14 to 20, Matthew wants, us, wants to show us that Jesus is the servant king. Now this first section actually falls into two halves. The first half is about the mission of the servant king. The second half is about the servant kingdom that he has come to bring. So first of all then, the mission of the servant king, chapters 14 to 17. In these four chapters, Matthew begins to highlight the diversity of opinions over who Jesus is. And he does this through a catalogue of different characters each of them telling us who they, at this stage, believe Jesus to be. Now, Matthew is really clear. The signs of Jesus's actual identity are clear and they're everywhere. But the question is, who is able and willing to interpret the signs correctly? First of all, we have Herod, who at the start of chapter 14 is haunted by the guilt of beheading John the Baptist and He's convinced himself that Jesus is John the Baptist returned from the dead. Then there are the great crowds who follow Jesus around, bringing to him, chapter 15, verse 30, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put, him at his, put them at his feet and he heals them. And then 1531, so that the crowd wandered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing. They share a sense of wonder at what they're seeing, but they still don't yet grasp who this Jesus really is. Then Matthew tells us about the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are together convinced at least about who Jesus cannot be that he can't be from God, that he can't be any kind of king because he breaks all of their precious man-made rules and traditions. In fact, so determined are they to disprove and discredit him, they try to trap him 
by demanding that he give them a sign from heaven. But Jesus just rebukes them and tells them if they would only stop and look, they would see the irrefutable signs that are already there right in front of, him, right in front of them. But what about the disciples? Who do they say Jesus is? Can they read the signs? Well, Matthew tells us in chapter 14, they saw him feed 5,000 people. And then another crowd of 4,000 people in chapter 15. Two vivid demonstrations, not only of his incredible power, but also of his incredible compassion. In between those two events, they witness him walking on the water and healing the sick with just a touch of his robe. They even see how he delivers a Canaanite woman's demon-possessed daughter and they hear that same woman confessing, this is the confession of a Gentile no less, addressing Jesus as Lord, son of David. But can his disciples read all these signs? All of this, of course, comes to a head in the middle of chapter 16 when Jesus finally turns to his disciples and says to them outright, but who do you say that I am? And then wonderfully, finally, the penny drops. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a thrilling moment in the book of Matthew. But the disciples haven't actually got it all worked out just yet. They know what the word Christ or the Hebrew word for it, Messiah, literally means that it was a royal title for an anointed king sent by God. They know he's the one God's people have been waiting for for so long, the one who was to come and rescue them. But they don't understand yet what he's come to rescue them from. They don't understand the mission of the king at all at this point. You see, in their mind, the Messiah's job is to come in victory and might, and establish his rule upon the earth. And that's not entirely wrong. There's something of that, of course, in the Old Testament promises, like those in Isaiah chapter 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. But what Peter and the other disciples have failed to do was to combine those promises of Isaiah 9 with the promises, other promises like those of Isaiah 53. Those other promises that God's servant would come to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. That he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That he would ultimately be cut off from the land of the living and pour out his soul unto death for us. Peter and the other disciples hadn't comprehended that the promised king could also be the suffering servant, that the king and the servant could be one, that Christ would be the servant king in the fullest possible sense. So from the middle of chapter 16 through to the end of chapter 20, Jesus goes on to explain to them his mission. On three separate occasions, Matthew records Jesus teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer and die and on the third day rise again. That he must because this is his mission. 
This is the very purpose for which he came. The glory of the king will be revealed, and they even get a taste of that in the transfiguration in chapter 17. But his suffering and death must precede his rising in glory. And just as the voice of God the Father speaks to them at the transfiguration saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him, they must listen to what Jesus is telling them. And we too need to listen to what Jesus is telling us about his identity and mission. Taking the next month to read carefully through the second half of Matthew is a great way for us to do that. Let's just ensure, though, that we don't speed read it or assume that we know it pretty well already. This is my beloved son, God the Father says. Listen to him. And perhaps you're even in the position this morning where you like lots of things about Jesus that you've heard about him, but you, you still don't understand why it was so vital that he needed to die. If that's you, listen carefully to Jesus in the pages of Matthew and let him explain it to you. Listen to him and put your trust in him and what he promises. Ask him, as you read Matthew this month, to save you as you read. As he explains to his disciples in chapter 17, verse 21, even faith the size of a mustard seed is unimaginably powerful if we place that faith in him. Now, there is one more important theme in, this, in the first section that we're looking at this morning, and that is that Jesus's identity as the servant king must radically shape the lives of those who've been welcomed into his kingdom. Because the servant king has come to establish a kingdom of servants. This is chapters 18 to 20. A kingdom of people who are devoted to humbly serving one another because their king has already humbly given everything, even his very life, to serve them. So Jesus teaches us about self-denial in chapter 16, about taking up our crosses and following him, about laying down our lives that we might find true life in him. He talks in chapter 18 about the need for childlike humility rather than worldly ambition. In fact, he says humility is the mark of true greatness in his kingdom. In the community of the servant king, you gain honour by serving others. You gain true wealth by giving away your wealth to the poor. You forgive and do good to your enemies. You forgive your brother or sister from the heart every single time they ask you to. And you protect others from the deadly dangers of sin. Even if, chapter 18, verse 17, that means on rare occasions, putting them under church discipline. All of this is what it looks like to live in his kingdom. As Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 20, verses 26 to 28, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're to become a kingdom of servants because we've been welcomed into the kingdom of the servant king. 
That's what chapters 14 to 20 are all about. In the next section, chapters 21 to 25, Matthew then wants to show us something else about Christ's kingship, that Jesus is also the dividing king. Chapters 21 to 25, he's also the dividing king. What these next five chapters present for us is not just a growing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. No, here Matthew wants to show us a clash of kingdoms, a clash and division between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. Like the last section, actually, this is a section of two halves. 21, chapters 21 to 23, show us this division happen, happening right there in the present as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Then in 24 and 25, Jesus prepares his disciples for the ultimate division, the ultimate clash of kingdoms that will occur when he one day comes again, on the final day when he returns to judge. So first of all, let's look briefly at chapters 21 to 23, the present division. Chapter 21 opens with Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is in many ways his coronation as king. And so it's striking to see what kind of coronation he has. You know, as, as citizens of the United Kingdom, we've all seen a bit of pomp and ceremony in our time with our royal family. Uh, many of us enjoy seeing that and there's nothing wrong with that. But look at how radically different Jesus's coronation ceremony is. He enters Jerusalem, the royal city, riding on a donkey. Fulfilling, Matthew tells us, what was spoken by the prophet Zephaniah when he wrote, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And as the crowd see him coming, they spread Branches, palm branches on the road before him, symbols of victory and triumph. And they shout, chapter 21, verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're praising him for coming to save them. This humble king riding before them on a donkey. It says so much about the unique character and mission of King Jesus. Now, not everyone, though, is happy. But this king hasn't come to make everyone happy. He has come to divide. And so entering the temple and asserting his royal authority over the place where God and man were meant to meet together, Matthew records a stark contrast in the responses of two different groups of people. Chapter 21, verse 14. Here's one group. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And from this point on, the religious leaders really go to war against Jesus. They do all they can to try and trap him. And so he in turn tells them three parables. The parable, parables of the two sons, the parable of the tenants and the parable of the wedding feast to accuse them not only of unbelief, but of violent opposition to God and his kingdom. 
He tells them that in rejecting him, they are rejecting the cornerstone of the kingdom God is building. And therefore, that kingdom will be taken away from them and given to those who are willing to humbly receive the king. Jesus is the dividing king. He divides the proud from the humble. He divides the religious from the repentant. He divides those who are willing to receive him from those who decide to reject him. He divides people here in the present so that Jesus warns the crowds and his disciples uh, throughout chapter 23 to beware even now of the pride and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They must not follow their example. And then in chapters 24 and 25, through a whole series of parables and lessons, he warns his disciples of the greater and even more ultimate division that he will bring on the last day when he returns to finally usher in his kingdom. On that day, he tells them, the king will come in his glory and all the angels with him. And 25 verse 32 Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And to one group he will say, verse 34, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to the other he will say, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. Jesus Christ, the servant king, is also the dividing king. And each one of us must decide for ourselves which side of the divide we will be on. Will we reject his kingdom today, just like the scribes and the Pharisees? Or will we gladly accept his free and gracious invitation to enter into it, just like the tax collectors and the prostitutes like the Canaanite woman and the little children. Jesus' loving warnings to us here in Matthew flow from his compassionate heart. He came to lay down his life for us in order that we might be able to come in. Which brings us to the final section this morning, where Matthew brings us face to face with Jesus, the crucified King. This is chapters 26 to 28. One of the most important questions for anyone to answer who wants to understand Christianity is why did Jesus die? Why was God's king crucified? And what we find threaded throughout this final section are two answers, two parallel answers to that question. The first reason that he's the crucified king is because in the end, as Matthew wants to show us, Everyone around him rejects him and abandons him as their king. So first there are the chief priests and the elders who gather and plot together now in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Then there's Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, who goes to the priests and asks, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And rejecting Jesus as his king, he betrays him into their hands for just 30 pieces of silver. Then there's the rest of the disciples who were loyal to Jesus right up until his arrest. 
but who then turn and flee when they realise what is going to happen to him. They run from him and abandon their soon-to-be-crucified king. Then there's Peter, who speaks most passionately of all of never abandoning the one that he himself was the first to recognise as the Christ, God's anointed king. But as he watches Jesus' arrest and subsequent trial, as he sees the inevitable cross that is looming, he not only follows the example of the other disciples in fleeing, he also denies Jesus three times and swears on his life that he never knew him. Then there is Caiaphas, the high priest. It's worth noticing, actually, as we read it this month, just how often those who are now baying for his blood and seeking to destroy him actually call him Christ or King. With their own lips, they confess who it is that they have determined to kill. So there's Caiaphas, the high priest, who, bringing Jesus before the council, demands that Jesus tell them if he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 26, verse 63. And when Jesus answers him, Matthew writes, chapter 26, verse 65, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And, and here now is the whole council of elders. They answered, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? They, they are looking their king in the face. And with mockery and lies, they reject him. And there is Pilate, the Roman governor, who, even recognising Jesus' innocence, asks Jesus point blank, are you the king of the Jews? But fearing the crowds, he washes his hands of God's king and leaves it to the people. And then there are the people, the crowds, Lest we think it was just the powerful people in authority who were deciding Jesus' fate. Chapter 27, verse 17, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, who was a convicted murderer, or Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And then there are the soldiers who in chapter 27, verse 28, stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, hail, king of the Jews. And then there is the crucifixion itself, where with a sign above his head that reads, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, passers-by deride him and mock him, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. It is as if by this point, Matthew wants us to know beyond a shadow of all doubt 
that all mankind has turned against their king. This is what humanity does to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. We knowingly and willfully crucified our king. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And yet, and yet he is not only the crucified king because we did this to him. Even more importantly, he is the crucified king because God did this to him. This is the very heart of God's plan to save us. And here's the second answer to that question of why Jesus had to die that is threaded throughout these last three chapters. So let's just rewind back to the beginning of chapter 26 again and trace this glorious golden thread. Because Matthew makes it clear everywhere that this was God's plan and design from the beginning that Jesus had to be the crucified King and Messiah. So firstly, we see Jesus welcoming the woman who comes to him in Bethany and anoints him with expensive ointment. As he explains to his disciples in chapter 26, verse 12, she is preparing him for his burial. Then just before Judas betrays him, Jesus tells his disciples that the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Then as he's arrested, 26, verse 56, he says, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then, of course, there's the Lord's Supper, where celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus takes up the bread and wine from the table and explains that everything about the Passover is ultimately going to be fulfilled in him. He is the true Passover lamb. His body will be broken and his blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Then alone in the garden of Gethsemane, as Matthew allows us to listen to him pray, we hear that not only is it the Father's will that Christ should die, but that it has a profound purpose. A purpose that he is fully obedient to submit to, though he shudders at the prospect of what it will entail, that he must drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. And then Matthew shows us again this thread of divine purpose in the symbolism of the innocent Christ being condemned and the convicted murderer Barabbas going free in his place. And we see it too in the finest and smallest of details like Judas's betrayal of Jesus for precisely 30 pieces of silver. Now, why is Matthew so keen to show us that everything that's happening here has already been foretold? It's because he wants to show us that Jesus's death was not a tragedy or a failure. On the contrary, everything that took place happened precisely according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was the very purpose for which Christ came, to be the crucified king to take our punishment upon the cross, to bear the consequences of our sin, that we might be saved. And that's why there is such tragic and yet beautiful irony 
in the words of the religious leaders, as they look up and see their king dying upon the tree. Chapter 27, verse 41. The chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. But that's precisely the point, isn't it? He cannot save others if he saves himself. He can only save others. He can only save them by sacrificing himself. He must drink the cup of God's wrath in order to spare us from drinking it. He must endure the darkness of separation from the Father to make a way for us to be rescued from the darkness and to never be separated from God again. Our King has to be crucified if he's going to open a way for sinners like us to walk into his kingdom. And open a way he does. As Matthew tells us in chapter 27 verse 51, at the moment Jesus breathes his last breath and dies, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The barrier which had existed since Adam and Eve were put outside of the garden. The barrier which made the people of Israel tremble at the foot of Mount Sinai as the Lord descended in smoke and fire. The barrier that had been expressed in the thick curtain which separated people from the presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple. At the moment of Christ's death, that barrier was once and for all removed. In that moment, as the curtain tore, God was saying to the world, to whoever is willing to believe, you can now come in. All because of the crucified king. But of course, the story doesn't end just there. Jesus had told his disciples that he must suffer and die and then rise again on the third day and rise he does. In the words of the angel waiting to greet the women as they arrive at the empty tomb, in chapter 28, verse five, he is not here for he has risen as he said. And the women run with joy to tell his other disciples, his disciples, what has happened. And finally, at the very end of the final chapter, the disciples meet their king once again on another mountaintop. But this time, Jesus isn't simply there to teach them. He is there to commission them to go and teach others. Chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The good news of this servant king and his kingdom, of his suffering, death and resurrection is good news to be shared with all the nations. And echoing all the way back again to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, this commission comes with a great promise. Chapter 28, verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As David Jackman writes, the gospel that began with Emmanuel, God with us, in the birth of the child, 
ends with Emmanuel God with us as we go to preach Christ to the ends of the earth. What our King has fulfilled, we now proclaim. The message of Matthew's Gospel has become our message too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning for the great love that you have shown to us. Thank you that though you are the King of Kings, the rightful heir of all creation, you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Please help us, Lord, as we continue to read Matthew this month, to listen to your voice and to trust in you and in your saving work. And help us, Lord, to grow in giving our lives in service to one another as we enjoy the privilege of living in the kingdom of, of the servant king. In your name we ask. Amen.